Welcome to the OmniWin Project podcast, where we are accelerating the co-creation of the future of our democracy. My name is Duncan Autry, and I am a conflict transformation catalyst. I'm the creator of the OmniWin Project, and I'm your host. The goal of this project is to facilitate the healing and evolution of our democratic systems and our political culture, so that together we can co-create a future that works for everyone. What that means is that if you're tired of our polarized and divisive political culture, or if you're worried about the impact of today's decisions on future generations, well, then you're in the right place. I believe that the world is ready for change, and I know that we have answers to most of the problems that we're facing. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing them with you. I'm in this for the long haul, and I hope that you'll join me. So come on over to the OmniWinProject.com where you can get more information, media, resources, and inspiration. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the OmniWin Project podcast. Welcome to the OmniWin Project. The guest on today's show is Paul Kahawata. Paul is a mediator, a facilitator, a trainer with a great depth of experience working with many approaches. In this conversation, we focus on a process called convergent facilitation. We talk about discovering the reason why behind what people want and the implications of believing that everyone matters. We explore all the ways that convergent facilitation can get polarized people to collaborate, and we ponder why the process isn't used more often and what it would take for that to change. This conversation was recorded in August of 2022. Thank you for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. Please enjoy. Paul, welcome to the OmniWin Project podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you about conversion facilitation today. Thanks so much for having me. So I actually recently had Mickey on as a guest of the podcast and who is one of the co-creators of the conversion facilitation model. I imagine she's a mentor and teacher of yours, but I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about just like like your relationship to convergent facilitation, like how you got into this and, and then we'll start unpacking, like what's it all about. Sure. So I've encountered nonviolent communication or NDC, uh, around maybe around 2009, something like that, and became really, really passionate about it and, and kind of followed that through a lot of different trainings and workshops and just trying to integrate it and then through that was always really interested in the social and systemic change potential within NDC but took me some time to figure out what that could look like and so through that I got really interested in work with conflict and restorative and transformative justice and worked as a mediator for a while and I also came to know Mickey and be really really interested in her work and then learned convergent facilitation formally around 2016 and then have been using it in a lot of different contexts over the past few years alongside also working as a mediator and facilitator in a, in a variety of ways. Yeah. So it is something that is a really central part of my work and I feel like it has really profound potential for, for transformation. Perfect. That's what I'm excited to to dig in with you about. So part of the, the promise of convergent facilitation is 
bringing disparate people with very different ideas that are stuck in conflict or disagreement and finding a way for them to move forward together, which is in a way the promise of conflict resolution or mediation and various kinds of dialogue and so forth. That's a very powerful promise, right? To be able to say whatever group we have, we, we can figure it out together. When you talk about your work, like what is one of the things that you just like really wish people knew about the power of these kinds of processes and, and like what they're able to do? One of the first things that comes to mind as you were saying that is this, this quote from this woman called Mary Parker Fonnet that Mickey often mentions, and I feel like it's in a way at the core of what convergent facilitation is about, which is around there being, as, as Mary Parker Fonnet put it, three ways of handling difference. And she's essentially saying that there's win-lose, which she calls domination a kind of lose-lose where no one really gets what they want, which she uses the word compromise for, but some people understand compromise differently, but essentially something where both people walk away feeling like they didn't really get what they wanted and don't really feel very good about the relationship between, between the parties. And then what she, she calls integration, where everyone gets what they need and they feel good about what they've come out with. And for me, there's something about the simplicity of how she lays this out that it, I really appreciate. It just feels so clear. It's like any interaction, any decision, any conflict, any difference that we were encountering, we kind of just have these three options. And there's something about the clarity and the simplicity of it. It's just like, well, which, which are we doing? Like paying attention to which are we doing? Which do we want to do? And I think that because of living in the in the social context that a lot of us live in it's often hard for people to imagine something that really is win-win or really does feel good to everyone and that people can really come together around and and genuinely support and feel positive about but i guess my sense of working with with conflict and and with decision making is that it's it's really possible, and, and I have a really deep faith based in experience that it's, that it's possible even in the most challenging or impossible looking situations. And it's, it's, sometimes it's kind of surprising to me how, how easy it is within convergent facilitation to find some needs or some criteria that people can agree on with or not have any opposition to very quickly, even when they've been in a, a very, very stuck or, or long running disagreement. So I think that it's, it's often hard for people to imagine. And I, I kind of wish that I could share that faith and that experience that, that backs up that faith, that, that there is this, this third way that Mary Parker's one kind of lays out. Wow, thank you. Right, so, yeah, Mary Parker Follett has become like a, like a superhero of mine. For those who don't know, I'll make sure to include some like information about this in the episode notes and things. But hundred years ago, basically, like mapped out like what a better way of doing our democracy could look like, and 
as a woman, like no one really paid any attention to her and just totally went under the radar and she was way ahead of her time. So yeah, The New State is a really cool book. But I think what you're saying here is like, it's really important. I mean, with the name of like the Omni Win Project, and this is part of what I'm aiming for. It's like, okay, we have this win-lose model, right? And everyone's like, I'm this person's going to win the election or this person's going to win the argument or we're going to choose pro-life or cho pro-choice or regulate guns or don't regulate guns. We're just like, da, da, da. And all these binary things are just really messing us up. So then people think like, oh, well, what, you want me to compromise my values, compromise whatever is important to me in order to get things to work out like that isn't attractive. And as the world is getting kind of more complex and people are more passionate, like compromise isn't really that much of an option either, right? And so if people are thinking that the only two choices are like, let me just give up whatever I want or beat the other person and win, then I see why the first one's compelling or whatever. And then, so the fact that like, wow, we can find a solution that actually everyone's getting what they want or what they need. And, and I think this is part of the brilliance of bringing nonviolent communication into the dialogue process because we're like getting down to like, what are the underlying needs here? Right. That one of the things I love about the principle, one of the principles is not so much about what, but the why is this important? So I want this and I want that. But then it's like, no, actually, why do you want that? And this is, so maybe this is a moment. Can you talk a little bit about finding the non-controversial essence of something? Like when someone has this desire for something, like finding the part that everyone can be like, oh, I, I can see why that's important. Yeah. Yeah. So this term, the non-controversial essence, which is a kind of technical term that I don't normally talk about it in those terms with a group that I'm working with, but the, the non-controversial essence is, is really pointing to the essence of what's important to someone, what really matters to them, the, like you said, the why behind whatever position. So if someone's maybe got a very strong feeling about a particular policy, for example, they've got very strong feelings around it. And that might appear very fixed and like they're holding that position very, very strongly. I, I personally believe from, and that's my experience, is that people aren't actually ultimately attached to that position. They're attached to what that position is trying to take care of. So for example, a policy that could be ultimately about trying to take care of something around safety or security, for example, or something around choice or freedom or whatever it might be. And I, I really see in my experience that if that thing is taken care of, if people trust that it's going to be taken care of, then they actually very naturally become much more flexible about how it's going to be achieved. So the idea of the non-controversial essence is finding what is that, that why, that thing that really matters to someone within whatever position they've got and making sure that that is really held. I almost think of it a little bit like if, if there's something that's really important to me, and I think that if I don't hold it, it's going to fall to the floor and maybe get broken, then my body is going to kind of keep holding it. And if 
And if I'm worried about it getting dropped or taken away from me or something, I'm going to maybe get more and more tense around it. But if you come and fully hold that weight with me, I don't have to, I don't have to be as tense around it. And I don't think people enjoy actually in general being tense around things when they have a sense that what is important to them is included in a way that they can actually trust that it really is going to be included, that it's very natural for people to, to relax. And uh-huh. so that was kind of talking about the essence side of it. And then the, the, non, the non-controversy side of it is if we get down to that level of what's really important, very quickly, these things that are in the first place were the positions were very controversial. There was reason for people to have active opposition to the, the policy suggestion or the idea that someone else was proposing. Once we get down to that essence level, it's very quickly not, not a threat, not a, not a concern, not controversial. And so at least, at least it's like, well, okay, I don't have opposition in principle to the thing that's important to you, as long as the thing that's important to me is also taken care of. So that, that's kind of what this, this term is referring to. I think people who are familiar with different forms of, of, of conflict resolution or conflict, conflict transformation will be familiar with this idea. There is some specifics of the distinctions that are made between non-controversial essence and deeper layers of needs, which we can get into if you, if you want to talk more about that. But that's, this, that's the basic kind of power of, of the non-controversial essence. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, because I mean, one of the ideas of non, in nonviolent communication is that there's, we all have needs and we all have strategies to meet those needs, right? And so there's something that we want or some reason why we want something and and we think that the thing is going to solve it and it very well could solve it, but someone's like, I don't actually like the way you're doing this thing or getting your need met. And so, and so just by helping people really get to the essence of it. And so... What I'm also hearing, though, is like there's something in the listening that kind of helps people soften around their experience, right? As you're talking about, like, I'm holding on to the thing and I don't want it to fall or break and, I, and, and I'm not going to let this go because this is like built my life around it. And this is even oftentimes in deep conflicts, people have like, it's like my purpose in life is to get this to happen and da, 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 da. So by reflecting back to them like okay i see this is important to you is this is important to you because of this reason and then like helping them figure out what is the reason behind it not only is helping them like find something that becomes like the non-controversial but when you as a facilitator is re- are reflecting that back to them they're also able to be like oh i'm not holding this by myself anymore and not only is the facilitator also holding it but everyone here also just heard that as well, right? Actually, I wonder, do you have an example of what someone's like, I would need this to happen, and then, and then you f- help them understand what their why is, just to sort of give this little structure? Oh, maybe I'll just say one thing yeah. before giving an example, which is that it feels really important to me that in that moment of, for example, as a facilitator, connecting with what's important to someone that I'm really genuinely, I'm genuinely connecting with what's important to them in a way that it makes sense to me so that it's not just, oh, I'm going to reflect back to you, but it, I, this, this feels like I'm actually 
really making sense of with 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 respect and understanding what's important to them and that i th i think that there's a layer of it which is about being heard and like you're saying i think sometimes that can even be a layer of people hearing themselves in a new way it's like oh yeah that's that's what's important to me when when you really connect with a non-controversial essence the 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 deeper what matters to someone in whatever position they're taking i often see their body relax a little bit and yeah on a sort of neuroscience level there's a way in which they can actually be help, helped to or supported to make sense of what's important to them for themselves but i think what's also really important is the sense that it's not just heard in convergent facilitation but it's also so in convergent facilitation we're putting those non-controversial essences on a list and there's a kind of commitment that it's held throughout the process and so I think it's not just being heard, but knowing that it almost like what they've put it as an ingredient into the pot is going to stay in all the way through the process and it's going to be included in an, in an outcome. And they're going to have choice and agency about whether they feel that it's been sufficiently included. So I think that's a really important element that I only want people to relax in a sense when it really is going to be held and carried forward. and. They're not having to hold it and carry it alone, but I, as a facilitator, am committed to holding it with them right the way through to an outcome that genuinely works for them. Yeah. So I know I asked for example, maybe we'll come to that in just a second. So what I understand about convergent facilitation is like, is there's kind of like the second three stage process, right? The, the kind of the previous stage is, well, we have some challenging conversation that we need to have about some tricky thing and no one can figure out how to solve it and everyone's fighting about it, right? But basically, the first layer is figuring out what are the criteria for the outcome that we want to get to, right? And then, um, and then second layer is like come up with proposals to meet that criteria, and then third one's like deciding upon it. Now, it's it seems like an oversimplification, and it is, but I just want to name that that three part step is the essence of just about any dialogue conflict resolution process that I know of, right? It's you got to figure out like what's the issue. Let's get everyone's voices on the floor. And then when we get everyone's voices on the floor, we also establish like, this is what we, these are, this is the things we need to make sure that whatever we do coming out of here is going to touch on all these. And so in your process, you're someone that says, I want this, you're getting reflected, finding out why they want it and figuring out a way that, that makes sense that everyone in the group can be like, okay, I can see why that's important. And they're softening because then also you're documenting it. And then that list of criteria then become like this guide throughout the whole journey. Am I getting it right more or less? Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, and I think I think this is also something that happens a lot of the time in life. Like, for example, like a group of friends, for example, deciding where they might go on holiday or vacation together. If they... Either if they keep making, for example, they might make suggestions of let's go here or let's go there. But if they keep saying, no, I don't want to go there, I don't want to go there, they might just be like, okay, well, what is it we're actually looking for from this from this trip? And someone says, well, I'd love to be in nature. Okay, cool. Let's let's think about somewhere that could be in nature. And someone says, I want it to be relaxing. I don't want to be, it to be a massive effort because I've just been really busy recently and I, and I need to rest. Okay, so something that's in nature, that's relaxing and restful, Someone else is like, well, but I also want it to be fun, not just relaxing, but also like actually fun, like some excitement in there too. So we, they might just build this list 
and then they can look at proposals that meet that those kind of requirements or those criteria rather than everyone just saying well let's go to x let's go to y let's go to z without even knowing what's important to us because it might be that we'll just keep saying if we haven't had that what do we want from this conversation first then we might just keep making suggestions that don't work for someone and it's, and it's just a lot slower actually and, and, and could also lead to tension. So I think it's something that people do a lot of the time, particularly in relationships of trust. We, we look at what do we need from this thing and then we can start to build a proposal once we know what we need from the proposal. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, a great example. And in my experience, I think it's interesting. There's some little caveats that can happen, especially like in our like relationships around this, that one is sometimes people will like self-edit, like they'll anticipate what they think someone else's needs are, right? And also sometimes people don't really know why they want to do something. And so making it explicit of like, why do you actually want to do this? Or what is really important about this for you is interesting because it, it could surfaces more than you might expect, right? Because sometimes it's like, well, I was proposing this because you said like six months ago that you wanted to do this thing. And it's like, okay, well, what is it that you wanted to do? Maybe it's just codependency or whatever, but there's all these different layers that we got to get mixed around here. So yeah, I think that in a certain way that covers our example a little bit. So we'll like, just, right. Like I want to do this thing. And then like, okay, why do you want to do it? It's because of this and this and this and, and helping the people figure that out can be like really powerful. Would it, would it be helpful for me to give an example of how these kind of positions that appear polarized or mutually exclusive basically can be you can find a non-controversial essence that that opens up the possibility of something that works for everyone yeah i think that would be really great I, that thank you uh, so one that comes to mind i was working with an organization and there was attention around a particular decision that was being made around something in the kind of area of do we do something that's kind of more radical that's about really deeply transforming like the whole system or this kind of thing versus a position which was more about well let's be realistic and let's make maybe some smaller changes or try and make change within certain parameters that are more normal. So this is, a, this is a question that comes up a lot around people who are wanting to, to change things. But on one level, it's kind of like this reform versus revolution kind of debate that goes, that goes on and can get very, very heated. So just at, at, at that level, it can, it can get really polarized. People are like, no way, no way. And the tension can be rising in that. So getting down to what, what could be a non-controversial essence behind the more radical transformation position, perhaps could be something like we want our, our way forward to get down to the level that is necessary for transformation to happen or something like this. So it's kind of about getting down sufficiently to the roots to be able to actually bring about 
change. So we might have different assessments of what that level is, but I don't think anyone from the more, the sort of the less radical position would generally have active opposition in principle to the idea of getting down to a level that actually makes transformation possible. It's, it's because if we don't get down to the level that makes transformation possible, then we're not going to have the, the change. But then on the, on the other side, it might be something about being able to, for example, mobilize sufficient numbers and power to accomplish what we're trying to achieve. So there's something about if we're too, if we're too kind of radical and we don't bring people with us, then we're also not going to achieve the change that we're trying to achieve. So at that level, uh, a non-controversial essence of, the, of both positions, getting down to a deep enough level and mobilizing enough, enough people or enough power to actually create the change, that might be non-controversial. It might even be shared as those two principles. And then with that move to that more non-controversial position, also a lot of, lots of flexibility opens up. So then the question becomes, rather than do we do X or do we do Y, let's get stuck in this kind of either or. We, we're coming into a question of, well, what could we do that attends to both of these non-controversial essences, both of these criteria? What I like about this is there's kind of this lateral move that's happening that is different than what anyone thought that they were going to be talking about, right? And and I so like there's as you this classic tensions, interdependent polarity of like, do we do things the new way or we do things the old way? And and or or how quickly do we change or how much do we think about it before we act and all that those that tension is there, right? And so what I like about this is that it's like we could talk about the pros and cons of either one and you get a lot of information out of that like polarity thinking is like this cool model we could figure out we could map it all out and find out what's going on but the but the idea that like well i'm actually worried that we're gonna like if we move too fast we're gonna lose people or if we don't move fast enough, or if we don't make it exciting enough, people won't engage, whatever. And everyone said, everyone's like, yeah, well, we need people to be involved. Oh yeah, everyone agrees on that. And so like, that's actually, you totally just jumped into a new box. And it reminds me of some of the literature where I was like reading the primer on convergent facilitation that Nikki has on our website. And there's this example of that perennial conflict about air conditioning or window open or window closed and heater on. And I have a friend who keeps on bugging me about this because she's like, this is impossible conflict. And I'm like, well, we figure out what people's underlying needs are. And I'm like, actually, we can't get there that way. Right. And in the primer with the example, the solution was, is once we're committed to figuring out what's good for all of us, then you can go to the place of, well, let's choose one for, and then we'll do it for 10 minutes. And then if you're too cold or too hot or too bothered by the air or whatever, then change it. And then we'll do that for 10 minutes. And in a way, it's like, that's like totally outside the box, right? Because we're like, we're kind of meeting everyone's needs, but it doesn't look like the question that we started with, right? Where everyone thinks that they're trying to find like the fixed once and for all solution or something. 
So by getting people in your example, like to start focusing on figuring out, okay, there's a criteria here is we want to make sure that this is engaging for people and that enough people want to be involved, whatever that looks like. Now, you're really just like, look, you're totally thinking outside the box now. Like, I just really appreciate that example. Yeah, I just, I just pick up on that. I'd say that it, it feels to me like very often what can come out of this is a very creative solution that is actually, it's much stronger because it integrates these different things. Like it, one way that I think of conflict processes and, and conversion facilitation kind of decision-making processes is almost like a, an ecosystem is talking with itself in the process. It's, it's allowing different bits of information that are held over here or over here to, to come together. And that actually allows both a kind of an evolution of a creative solution to come out that integrates much more and also brings together the collective power of everyone working together to be able to bring it about. So it feels to me almost like by doing these processes, we're allowing something that has the potential to be there to kind of be unleashed, a, a much wiser, more creative solution and better relationships between people and the type of collaboration to make it happen that just, just wouldn't be possible without that. And maybe, maybe one thing more that I could add onto that. So just an example that comes to mind for me is say, for example, there was a convergent facilitation process around changing practices in, in farming, for example. So people working in a more kind of conventional, large scale farming agricultural industry way and people who are coming from a more kind of environmentalist perspective, they might have really, really different positions when they come into the room, but a couple of non-controversial essences that could come out of that might be something like caring for the, the health of ecosystems, which is not, I don't think that anyone in the agricultural industry has a fundamental opposition to that in principle. They will want there to, they don't want to destroy ecosystems, but there are certain reasons why some of the things they're doing might, might have an effect, maybe massively, but that's not what they're fundamentally committed to. And, but something that might come out from the, someone who's, who's from the, the more conventional farming practices position might be the non-controversial essence that might come out of their position is that any transition be realistically, economically viable for, for, for farmers. Which again, I don't think someone from an, a more environmentalist perspective would have any opposition in principle to that. And then by bringing those two together, it's almost like we are stretching towards something more visionary or something more transformational, but at the same time, really looking at what are the practical steps that could take us there. And so it's almost like by bringing together these different positions, we're getting both pulled in a more radical direction and also in a more practical 
direction, which is for me is an example of how something much more powerful and much more creative can evolve out of integration than than if we don't integrate these different underlying needs. That's a really good example. Thank you. One of the things that sort of the the values or principles of of conversion facilitation is the idea that everyone matters. And so you know, with just the going of this farming example, right? Like the, with the farmers and then the people wanting to change the farming process and make it more be eco-friendly. In a lot of our conflicts, it's, there's people don't necessarily care about the other people initially, right? So they're coming in and, and it's like, because they really want to get their outcome and and they are maybe see each other as enemies and whatnot. And can you talk a little bit about like getting to the to the place where people start finding that commitment to the whole, right? Like, oh, wow, I really, okay, I'm starting to see that I actually can really, I can only get my transitions in the farming industry to happen if farmers are engaged with it, right? Like, actually, these are the people that are going to be the ones that implement it, and they're the ones that are going to be impacted by it. And, you know, so how do you get, what are some of the ways you get people to care? And And I know that part of the answer is, by finding these uh, non-controversial essences, by listening to them, giving them a chance to sharing the holding of whatever's important to them. But I wonder if you could just like talk a little bit more about like getting people to realize like, wow, I need to actually solve this with these people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important question. So I think that one, one thing that is a really helpful kind of precondition is where people really recognize that even like even if I really dislike you or even hate you or totally disagree with your position, if I recognize that it's not really going to be possible for me to get what I want without some form of collaboration with you. When I recognize that we we have a shared problem or we have a a risk that we share or a or a possibility that we share in some sense, recognizing that in a sense, we're in community, the community of a problem or a, or a possibility or a, a risk that we share, there's some way in which, and I think that's, that's often really helpful in, in something like convergent facilitation is if people really feel the significance of the possibility of finding something that we can both support and they maybe feel the significance of the possibility of not finding something that they're really connected to there being something at stake. So that's, I think that's, that's one thing that Nikki often talks about this principle that people are much more likely to agree on a, on a shared problem that really affects them or, or things that they care about than if we're just going to have an ideological discussion or, or something like that. But it's actually possible for people who they can maintain different ideological or philosophical or political positions, they can, it doesn't actually require people to necessarily change them in order to come up with something they can collaborate on and, and genuinely support. So that's, that's one strand. I also think that a really important part of it is I, I, I kind of see what convergent facilitation does is shifting from a competitive game to a collaborative game from a zero sum to a positive sum game. So in a competitive game where it's me versus you and everything that I lose means you win, everything you win means I lose, 
there's a, a, it makes sense. There's a logic to me fighting with you to try to get as much as I can for me because it's me versus you. But in convergent facilitation, by building this shared list of criteria that we're looking at how can we work together to meet all of these criteria sufficiently that everyone can genuinely say yes to what we come up with at the end. We've actually just switched the game from me versus you. There's no incentive for me to win over you if I can win with you. Yeah, I have this little phrase in my head, like win-win, there's nothing to lose. Like there isn't, there really isn't anything to lose if I'm getting what I want out of a solution. And I think that sometimes people can enter a process with quite a lot of kind of adversarial orientation towards each other or low trust or like, okay, I'm going to try this out. I don't know if it's going to give me what I want, but I'm going to try it. And through the process of entering a collaborative game, coming out of the competitive game into a collaborative game, it's, it's no longer incentivized to fight with you. So we actually can just start talking, for example, in the break, we've just come up with a list of principles and I actually feel good about those principles. And in fact, even maybe the principles that came out of what you were saying, I actually share them and agree with them. Like, yeah, I want this to be economically viable for, for farmers. Like that's, I don't want them to go out of business or not have enough money to feed their families or whatever. It's possible that we can then start to, to develop connection through the process. And something that I've really enjoyed seeing a couple of times is when we get into that second phase where we've gotten a shared list of criteria, and maybe you have a couple of different working groups trying to come up with a proposal. They might even get competitive about who can come up with the best collaborative proposal. Like we really want in our group to come up with a thing that's going to meet all the needs so well. And then there's this human creativity and energy that's going into finding something that works for everyone to the point where people are quite attached to their different proposals for their collaborative proposals. And I find that a really beautiful moment. It's like, oh, well, it's almost like we're creating conditions where humans can get to drop all of that fighting that we maybe don't even want to do in the first place. And we can get to collaborate, which is a lot more enjoyable and fun. And there's a lot to say around power dynamics and, and if, yeah, if there are people coming into the room who've got very different levels of power, it may be important. It may be that that can be addressed just through entering a collaborative game. So even if you've got a lot more power than me, if you are getting what you want from a solution, you probably don't have opposition to me getting what I want. But there might be situations where in order to even enter the, the room in the first place, in, to, in order to be able to enter dialogue, we may need to do something that addresses the imbalances of power in in, in some situations that may be, for example, from a, a strand of nonviolence being to create the conditions for dialogue when someone is not willing to dialogue. So there's a lot more to say around, around that. And I think that there are these different strands into how we get to a place where people are at least open to the possibility of something that meets other people's needs. At some point, I think people can start to actually get committed to each other's needs where they were like in the first place, when they entered the room, perhaps they were only committed to their own. They can get to a place where 
I'm committed to my needs and your needs and vice versa. And a key principle that Mickey talks about is the more that we trust that our needs matter, the more willing we are to to stretch and to yeah seek something that works for the other person as well. But also, the less that we trust that our needs matter, the less likely we are to to reach towards the others. Oh, so rich, thank you. <laughs> yeah, because what I'm imagining is like this this moment of like. Okay, so we've come up with everyone's spoken, we have a list of criteria, and these are all the things that are important to thing. And this is a little bit of how that power gets stressed. Like, is there anyone else? Is there anything missing here, right? Like anything that we don't have on the list? Notice that you haven't said anything yet today. What's going on in various ways of like, is this covering it? Because But then once that list is there, everyone's like, hold on, we're going to spend the rest of our time trying to figure out how to make this list work? Like. Oh, that sounds kind of cool, right? I mean, like I imagine that there's like that magic of like people being like, "Oh, wow, yeah!" Like, and that's I love that like, the competition between the the groups that are trying to, yeah, picture, yeah, the, the farmers and the environmentalists, like this group of farmers and environmentalists are trying to find a more collaborative solution than this group of farmers. And yeah, actually, your piece about getting the power balance is is interesting. I tend to think about this like graph that like John Paul Lederach has in one of his books. And it starts with if the power is imbalanced, you can't actually start negotiating as if there's like a massive power imbalance, right? And because if someone's like, I don't actually need to talk to you, or I don't actually have to listen to you. So this is where like nonviolent protests or whatever is like useful to like get the power balance because like now I have your attention. And, and this is why like true nonviolent protest is so important because it's it's loving of the enemy right because if people are just in protest because they're just pissed off about something then they don't realize that once they have the attention they have to go collaborate with that person to find the solution right if, if you just framed them as your enemy the whole time along it's harder to get that jump to oh wait i'm gonna have to work with you to sort this out and that kind of makes me think about just like, as you're setting this up, I, I, in comparison to like different processes, one of the earliest dialogue models I learned was a reflective structured dialogue, which is from the public conversations project, which are now called essential partners. And, and they put a ton of emphasis on the preparations, right? So they're like interviews with everyone and just like making sure that you figured out like, what are the different issues? And 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 i also have been thinking about if people who are doing kind of like citizen assembly deliberative processes and so forth oftentimes they'll prepare like a whole information sheet and just be like these are all the different perspectives and they'll frame it like this is why these people want this and this is why these people want this and and so that first process is really focused on like figuring out like the greatest question that's going to really get everyone to engage. And this other process is about framing the full complexity of it and other projects are, yeah. So I'm curious, like, what does that preparation look like? Like how, what's your, how much pre-work is happening before you're bringing everyone together in this model that you are using? Mm. Yeah, I think it, in my experience, it really, really depends on the, 
on the content. So for example, sometimes I might be using, sometimes I won't use some of the principles of convergent facilitation in a, a meeting within an organization where there's maybe quite a high level of trust. There's just maybe one particular problem that they couldn't really figure out. And maybe even without saying it, I'll just suggest as I'm facilitating, okay, let's, I think I'm hearing this is important to you. I think I'm hearing this is important to you. And I'm just building a very short list of maybe four or five criteria and saying, okay, what could we do that would address all of these well enough? That's kind of like a tiny version of convergent facilitation uh, or, or, or at least elements of it. In other situations, it might be that there are massive imbalances of power, not only in terms of the the kind of power over an outcome in terms of, for example, a large institution and a group of activists who don't have the same structural power as the institution does, for example, but there might be also other forms of, all kinds of other forms of power imbalance that might need to be addressed. In some situations, I'd want to meet with everyone who's going to be in the process one-to-one for a whole chunk of time beforehand. In other situations, I might just invite them to, to just answer a couple of questions in writing to me about what's important to them or, or any kind of combination of those things. And I think an important sort of spectrum that convergent facilitation can find different places on is, is around what's the level of relational tension between people. Like what's the level of actual anger or mistrust towards each other. Because sometimes people have very, very different perspectives on what they want to happen, but there isn't a lot of tension between the people. It's more in relation to the decision. In other situations, there might be a lot of that. And so in some situations I've I've been involved in, there's a, there's a process of mediation that happens before we go into convergent facilitation where people need to hear each other and work through that relational side first. In some situations, there's a little bit of that, and it's not like I need to do a whole other process first, but when we're in the room, maybe I need to be a lot more careful to really hear people, take a lot more breaks to be able to check in with people one-to-one, all these sorts of things. So I think there's a massive spectrum of what might be needed in different situations. And I think, yeah, the power the different elements of power is, is one really important part of that. But yeah, it's also about the relationships. It's also about how polarized it's been. Lots of different factors, I guess. So continuing on this thing about how we're framing the topic, one of the issues that I've heard and it's kind of been a discussion through the different podcasts so far is how much, like, some people will bring people together and they're going to be like, here's like a whole information packet of like all the different perspectives and stuff like that. And, and, um, and then I've heard a critique of having doing that because it's priming everyone to think about how the conversation is already going, as opposed to allowing that kind of creative generative space to kind of go wherever it, it takes. Right. So if I'm taking the issue and it's like, well, here's all the reasons why we need to fix it, the farming industry to make it more eco-friendly. Like, here's all the reasons why we shouldn't change it, whatever, you know? So 
when you're bringing people together, is it really just like, here's a topic that we're going to be talking about? And and I guess this is, this is the implication for this process that they all need to be stakeholders and more or less be familiar with whatever the issue is. So I think this this is a really important question that I've been just engaging with quite a bit recently. Part, yeah, there are a couple of processes, one that I was facilitating and one that I was supporting someone else to facilitate where the the people in the room in one situation it was a, like a citizen's jury similar to a citizen's assembly and in that situation the people in the room were in the room through a process of sortition so they weren't necessarily stakeholders in the sense that that some people involved in that situation would be stakeholders so they didn't necessarily have a really deep familiarity with the particular different strands of the issue. I think this again can can depend on context, but my sense is that in general, it's helpful to start with building a list of criteria that are important to people to some extent first before bringing kind of information inputs and to really focus those information inputs on things like understanding the problem more or understanding possible solution areas or particular kind of dilemmas or something like this. So rather than bringing in information that would, in a sense, kind of entrench or polarize or be making again, kind of competitive arguments, like this makes more sense or this makes more sense, trying to, once we've started to come together to look at what can we do to address this problem in a way that addresses all the needs, then feeding information into that process in a way that's not about making a case for this or that, but highlighting opportunities or possibilities for a solution, highlighting impacts or problems or challenges, these sorts of things, so that the they can kind of join together with the criteria. And it might be that from that input, you come up with, with new criteria. And that's, that's, that was part of the process that I was recently doing. I think also that something that I had a, as a reflection on the process that I was recently doing is I wonder if in some deliberative processes, there is a, a bit of a kind of inheritance from the idea that the way that we can get to good decisions is by getting all the information and maybe having a kind of logical or rational debate or something like this. And I think that the information is a really important strand and it might be that the the stakeholders bring all that information already with them into the room, but it might be that there's information that they could benefit from that's not, that they're not bringing into the room, things they don't already know about. Um, but the, the problem is not only addressed on the level of information, because I think that's missing a, a big layer, a really important layer of why it's even a problem in the first place. An example <laughs> of, of, of a kind of principle that's really key in convergent facilitation is this idea that we're trying to create the conditions where there's been a polarized issue 
where we're moving from kind of fighting against each other to sitting or standing together in a shared dilemma. Like, okay, how can we address X and Y rather than I want X, I want Y and, and fighting against each other? So once we've got to that place of looking at, okay, what could we do that would address X and Y, that would address this criterion and this criterion, then Mickey calls it a, an engineering problem. It's kind of like, then we've got a practical problem that we are looking to solve, but we're looking to solve it together. At that point, getting in, inputs of information, perspectives, people with different experiences or expertise can be really helpful to answering the question of how could we come up with a creative solution that could work for everyone. But if we try and jump to that, we're actually probably still having a kind of either or win-lose argument through information. Whereas if we get down to what's important to everyone, build that shared list of what's important to everyone, then we can look at the practicalities in a kind of forward-moving, let's solve this together kind of way. Uh, it's so perfect. Thank you. This is, is you really got right to the, the, the essence of what, I, <laughs> what I was trying to ask here. And, and part of what I'm hearing then is that, like this conversion facilitation model, it can be really adaptable. So we can either have like a bunch of people that are in the topic and they're dunged into it and they've been digging into it for their whole lifetime or years. And and we, it also can be applied to a group of people that are being brought together to talk about an issue that they haven't necessarily all thought about that much before. And, but really the key thing is to, is to understand like what's at the heart of it for folks kind of really making sure that, that that's addressed. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure you talk about that first and then maybe, and then talk about it again and keep on checking on that. <laughs> Uh, and that makes a lot of sense to me. I like to say that it's like conflict is always this opportunity because it gives you a line like straight into someone's heart. If I have feelings about something, that means that you're touching on something that's important to me. And that's like what you were saying. And if I think that you're going to hurt it, then like, like stay away, I'll kill you. Like, and, but if you're like, oh, actually, let me hold that for you. Like, let me actually understand why this is important to you. And then there's mutual care and support for that thing. Then it's like. We're about to get real intimate because I'm going to tell you about something that's really important to me and why and all that. So this was that other branch of the conversation. So give me a sense of the range of applications either that you've heard about for this or whatever. Because I know that, okay, so we can use this tool to help us figure out where we're going to go on vacation with our friends. We can figure out how to rearrange the office furniture, I think is an example I was reading about, right? Just today, I was listening to... Apparently, like the Colorado River is not making as much water as it's been doing for a long time. And all these southwestern United States that use that water for basically everything, the government gave them two months to come up with a solution on how they were going to conserve their water and reduce their water use by like 7 to 20% in certain cases. They didn't come up with an agreement, as we can imagine. They all just fought or whatever, who knows what. And so I'm wondering, like, ooh, could we apply this to that kind of process? And then, and then kind of going to this like citizen assembly level, could this process work to get like a group of people to talk about like 
gun policy in the United States or immigration policy in England, you know, like some sort of massive topic where you have that getting that sortition or representative sample. Like, do you see this process being applicable in all the range of topics? Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, really from, I've even supported someone making a major sort of life decision as an individual to, to use conversion facilitation for a kind of internal decision-making process <laughs> to be clear on what different, different parts of, of us as an individual are wanting that might lead me to want to do X or want to do Y. So from that level, all the way through using it very informally in a, in a, yeah, in just in a family or in a group of friends or in a household, using it in quite a routine way in certain decisions within an organization or something like that, all the way through to these much larger public policy situations, including, and competitive situation is, is, I feel like it's, it's has a particular relevance and power in these highly polarized situations. In a sense, I've seen it work most smoothly when people feel really strongly about something and it's, and it's really polarized. There's a way in which you actually sometimes, like, I, I have a bit of a working theory that you come up with a, with a shorter list of criteria sometimes when people feel really strongly about an issue, they feel really affected by it and they're really committed to a solution that works for themselves. There's a way in which you actually get a shorter list of criteria because people say like, well, this is what I, as long as, as long as my community is safe, I don't mind. That's, that's my one, that's my one thing I'm bringing to this. Mm-hmm. I'm safe. Or as long as there's, there's freedom of choice around whatever, or whatever it might be, I don't, I don't mind what else goes in the pot. As long as that's in the pot and it's still, it's, it's looked after by what we, the, the meal that we, that we, that we cook up together, then I'm fine. So I feel like it can be applied to, to yes, so many different contexts. One other one that I, want to bring in for me is around not only coming up with specific decisions around a particular area of policy or particular decision that needs to be made, but also I think it can be used at the level of systems change as well. So a really important part of, of, of how I see or how, how I feel hope in relation to systems change is the possibility of us creating very, very different social systems based on very different paradigms that are based on, for example, collaboration rather than competition, economic systems that are based on collaboration or with decision-making systems or justice systems that are based on collaboration rather than competition, that are based on shared power rather than imposition and domination, et cetera. And I think that something like conversion facilitation can be used in the process of developing systems, because in a sense, shifting our social systems is in itself a choice, a decision, a, an agreement that we're changing an agreement. And so it's a way of integrating different concerns and perspectives and, and needs into designing new social systems. So I use it. At a, at a much smaller scale level at the moment, for example, working within a 
an organization where we're, we're, we're developing a conflict system and we're hearing different, different things that people are saying. Maybe someone says, but I hate it when people talk behind my back. There's a way that from that we can take some sort of principle or criterion. So it sounds like it's important to you that we create space for people to be able to speak honestly and directly and for us to be able to know what's going on with our colleagues. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a, almost like a design criterion for designing the conflict system this person would like to, to move towards. So that's a, that's a small scale example, but I think this could also be done at a much larger scale. That's something I'm really interested in is we can use some of these principles to co-design social systems that would work for everyone. So in a sense, it's kind of like a collaborative decision-making process to create new social systems that are based, that are, that are based on collaboration. So it's kind of, again, going back to nonviolence, it's, it's integrating means and ends, collab collaboration in the process of creating the social systems that we want, which are in themselves collaborative. This is, this is very much also related to the work of Dominic Barter. He's a, he's a main influence for me in my way of understanding systems and the process of developing or building systems that's done through dialogue in order to create conditions for dialogue ongoingly. I actually went to a Dominic Barter workshop like almost 15 years ago. I'm totally psyched to hear whatever you was going on there, but we're going to look to the show notes. There'll be some information there for folks that are listening. But so I right now I just want to reflect something that I find to be really exciting. So I think not only can we use this for just like super big issues, but we could even use this kind of tool to talk about how we want to talk about these issues and just imagining like uh, here in Oakland, there's like a question about how much funding is going to the police and how do we, what are the police in charge of? And it's kind of a big topic. And, and so we could use this process to like get all the different people who were want to talk about it to talk about it. But people are also really angry. They're like, wait a minute, I didn't get consulted. I didn't do this. I, no one told me about this. I didn't get enough information that I wasn't included, whatever these issues. So we could also use this kind of convergent facilitation process to be like, how do we want to talk about this issue? Or how do we want to make big long-term decisions in the city of Oakland, for example, right? So I think we're going to get down to this is the question that just deep is the closest to my heart right now. Why are we not using this all the time? And I'm curious to hear your theory about that. Like, we don't, what, what do we need to do to get this into the mainstream? Is it that people don't know or is it that people don't believe in it or they've never heard of it? Or like, what are your obstacles like as a people doing convergent facilitation? But what is going on in our society? Why are we not doing this more often? Do you have a theory? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess. I feel like that's, that's a whole, a whole very long conversation in itself, but I guess I could just say a few, a few thoughts that come to mind. So I, going back to something we were talking about earlier, I think that not only have people not heard of the specific processes, whether that's convergent facilitation or dynamic facilitation or the, these processes, but I think that people often have most of their life experience 
around charge and difficult topics is of some sort of win-lose or lose-lose kind of, and, and if, if you haven't experienced it, it's, it makes sense to me that people would doubt it's, doubt the possibility. I was just having a conversation with someone just the other day and, and they were like, yeah, but do you think you could do that with this issue? And for me, it's like, oh yeah, of course, this is what, this is what this thing is for. But of course, if you haven't experienced it, then, then it, it makes total sense to me that people would have doubts around that. So I think that there's, that's a, a, a huge strand. And that when, and because people have so little experience of it, that sometimes if you talk about win-win, I think people sometimes even hear that as you're suggesting that they lose kind of thing, which again, yeah, makes sense to me, but it's, it's, if, if I talk about collaboration, some people will probably be like, oh no, that means I'm not going to get what I want or it's going to take forever or both or whatever it is. So I think that, that's one strand. I think that for me, there's a whole question around what, what I could call strategy and theory of change around what do we do with these processes? So, and I think that, that yeah, again, the question of power comes into that because it might be that we would need to have a really powerful social movement in order to create the conditions where we can be using a process like convergent facilitation to address some of the major issues and crises that we're facing. Or it could be done through a process of creating new systems without necessarily needing to interact directly with the old ones or the, the currently dominant ones and the idea of creating social systems that work so well that people move towards them because they work well because they meet needs but i think that there's a whole in a sense just to have the process on its own there isn't necessarily a theory of change or a strategy for how to bring out the the full potential or power of that. And so I think that there's a, there's a whole another strand. I also think it's important to acknowledge within that, that there are people, groups, social forces that for, for different reasons might be opposed to trying to shift things around. If we're trying to shift social systems, some people who currently in certain ways benefit or feel like they're benefiting from our current social systems may well have a lot of resistance to that. So I think that really needs to be factored in as well. And, and, and to really think about if we're going to bring these things into a more mainstream space, how do we do that in a way that doesn't lose their transformative or radical potential because i think for me like i was saying earlier i think that convergent facilitation like other sort of transformative conflict processes can have the function of organizing collective power to shift the systemic conditions that we're in that are bringing us into conflict in the first place and that is something that can easily get diluted or even removed from these things. So I think that's also a really challenging question. I, I have a lot of hope and faith that it is possible. And I'm super excited about the 
experiments in this area. And I have a sense that one thing is just starting to have enough examples, even if they're quite small scale, of where this thing happens. I remember watching this documentary about climbers in Yosemite and something that was, was thought completely impossible was then became possible, but it was possible only with a huge amount of infrastructure to, to, to climb a particular rock face. It was thought impossible and then someone did it and it was like, oh, it's possible, but it was a, it was a huge amount of effort and logistical and it took, it took ages to do. And then like decade by decade, people pushed that edge further and further until the point that someone was free siloing it, like climbing without ropes in a matter of hours. And I feel like I, I see that process happening. I remember I was a couple of winters ago, I was with some friends and we were jumping, jumping from, we made these big structures out of snow and we were jumping between them. And the things that at first looked impossible, someone would try it and then they'd manage to do it. It was like, oh, is it possible? Oh, it's possible. And literally within about two minutes, all of us with very different kind of abilities to jump around and stuff. I mean, some of us were like 12 years old. Some of us were like 50 years old. Everyone was doing this thing that had been on the edge of, I don't think we can, this is possible. But I have a sense that there is something significant. I don't think it's enough, but there's something significant in just creating a few robust examples of integration being possible on a really polarized issue that somehow just changes the, the boundaries of what we think is possible. And from there, I feel like there's a, there's something that can come next in terms of the growth of that thing. I think that in some ways, a lot of us, maybe all of us even, are actually deep in our hearts longing for the belief that it's possible to live in a world that works for all. And a lot of us that aren't saying we're up with, we're standing for that, it's because we don't believe it's possible. So if it's not possible, then yeah, I want to win. If, if someone's going to lose, I want it to be me. But if we can all win, then I think that most of us, there's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of really, really difficult stuff, clearly like so much of that. But I, I really believe that most human beings are not fundamentally committed to being horrible to each other. If we can create conditions for them to do something where they can meet their own needs and meet each other's, I, I think that that is more attractive to most people. If they actually have a real felt sense of it being, being real and not just a kind of, again, not just a, a compromise where they're actually not getting what they need from a solution, but they're getting what they need, both in terms of the needs that they walked into the room with, but they're also getting a lot of other needs met in terms of the experience of collaboration, the experience of community, the experience of connection, the experience of being able to work together. And I think is often one of the things that people love doing the best, no matter what their political position. When people identify someone else as being on their team, they like to help each other a lot of the time. I, I think there's, there's lots of situations that there's a lot of situations where you could say that's not the case. And I think it's really complicated, but I also have a lot of faith that 
for me feels like it's it's backed up by my experience. Wow. I okay, so thank you. I love your answer so much. And this is gonna be the future conversation. So yeah, as I was saying, the season one, I'm like getting all the different cool perspectives. Next layer is to actually start getting into the conversations of start getting into the conversations of like how do we actually do this? And and uh but so I'm going to lift out a couple of the things that you said there that I think are really interesting and just like stuff it brought up for me. I love the story of the jumping in the snow, right? And like that thing. I I actually was in, in Ecuador and we, me and this group of friends, like when we fat, like we heard about this really amazing rope swing and we we went there and they were like closed, but like, yeah, just go ahead and go up on it. And we finally go, we drove hours to get here and we get there and it's like a hundred foot rope with like a disc of wood and like a 300 foot drop below it and it was like super scary and we we're like oh no way we can't do this you know and then and then i was like you know what i don't really feel comfortable like coming all this way and telling the story about like oh i didn't really feel safe doing it and, 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 and so we like kind of figured out what would make us feel secure in doing it and then i go and do it and it was like whoa that was so fun and then like i did it again and and then one other person was like i'm willing to try this and and so that there can be a cascading effect, right? That if we can show people like, wow, this is possible and it gets into their consciousness and that gives someone like someone else the courage to try it. And then someone else to, and then, and then eventually we're like, oh, wow, this is totally possible. We can do this. And it actually makes me think about like how change happens. There's like a, it's like one of the shortest little Ted talks. And there's like this guy in a field and he's dancing. Right. So it's like a concert and there's like everyone's sitting on the lawn. Have you seen this before? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And there's like everyone's sitting around watching the concert and there's one dude just wilding out. Right. And then someone else like comes like running across and joins that person who's wilding out. And then there's two people wilding out dancing. And then within 15 seconds, there's 50, 100. Everyone is doing it. Right. And so. Part of the, the point that the, did the person who did that was it's not necessarily the first person who has the idea that makes the difference, but it's the person who makes, who validates that idea. It's the second person that's really the courageous one that is saying like, I'm going to go and do this. And that makes it accessible to everyone else. And so, and it was just that, that cascading effect, I think is really interesting and and so like, how do we demonstrate this, get it into people's consciousness enough that someone else might be willing to give it a try. And there's some like, some clever ideas that, that like have come up in different conversations so far. So we will definitely going to follow up and talk about that some more. And I'm also touched by like this idea that it's like that power imbalance, right? And then there's like various layers there. like. I mean, people, it might be easy to say, oh, people in power don't want us to do this kind of thing. And that might be true. It will probably be uncomfortable for people in power to be like, wait, I'm not going to be the one who comes up with the policy all by myself. Like, we're going to, like, I'm going to hand it over to a bunch of citizens and whatever. And, but it seems like the real power imbalance is just like, is like around attention and awareness, right? That that's like, that like the people who are like, dominating the the attention tools tv and internet and all that 
they're just like totally stuck in the system and just like playing, playing, playing it out. And so this kind of lateral thinking is like hard to like that something else could be possible and which touches on something that's just been like, a, like, I don't know. It's something I've been thinking about. I was actually like doing like little like Google trends research and stuff. And I was just finding like, there's so few people that are Googling like deliberative dialogue or anything like this, right? Conflict resolution. And almost no one is asking, how do we fix our democracy? Right. And it's like, how is that possible? Because everyone's pissed off about the way it's going right now. It's broken. Everyone agrees it's broken. But almost no one is being like, hmm, I wonder if there's a better way to do this. And and so there's just like, yeah, just like that inertia of like, well, we've been living in this for so long. And 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 when I get pushback with some of these ideas, like, like very specifically, like you know, my dad listened to my first episode of the podcast and, and his response was, well, that people are in this country are like selfish and <laughs> not that smart and whatever. And it's like, well, hold on, it's never going to work. And it's almost like people really kind of want that despair, right? They kind of just like want to hold on to it's all a mess. There's nothing we can do about it. These people are going to mess it up or those people are going to mess it up and, and it's their fault. And it's interesting why that doesn't get people to say, huh? I wonder if anyone's found this out and then they like do some research and they find convergent facilitation or dynamic, yeah, like I find all these great tools. So anyways, that's what we're going to try to do is get everyone to know more about this. I just wanted yeah. to pick up on that just, just quickly. I think it seems to me like people in some situations have made some kind of a decision or choice, maybe not, not fully consciously to to not hope or to not believe in these things, because I think it can be really painful to, to, to walk around in the world or to move around in the world, thinking that these things are possible. So I, I, I'm not saying that specifically with your doubt or anyone in particular, but I, I think that there is a way that people like for very good reason, that makes a lot of sense to me, the protecting themselves from the risks of having some hope or belief or faith in these possibilities. And so I think that that's one way in which leading with really robust examples can be a way that it's almost like people are on, on the back foot. They don't want to give their weight to something that unless they're sure that it can carry their weight, they don't want to, I don't want to step on this on this platform unless it's really going to hold my weight. And so if you, like you're saying with the rope swing, if you see other people standing on that, it's taking their weight, then maybe I'm willing to just kind of try it out. But yeah, I wonder if sometimes we need to lead with, with something that feels really real and practical and robust and kind of people can believe in even if they have a lot of a lot of doubts one other thing that i want to say is around the, the relationship between convergent facilitation and the systemic context i think that i think this is this is very much relevant also to 
plus conflict transformation processes as well, that if we're trying to, to do something collaborative in a wider space that is competitive, there will be dynamics and forces and kind of gravitational pulls that will be affecting what we're trying to do. So I think we either need to create enough of a container where collaboration actually makes sense for people that they're not being pulled by those wider um, systemic forces and dynamics, or we may need to, in some situations, get to the point of shifting systems sufficiently that people who might currently have an incentive to block or try and disrupt a collaborative process no longer find themselves in that same position. I guess that's, again, another whole massive topic that that there's tons more to say on. But I think that it's it's important to me to understand or to, to think about the the potential of convergent facilitation as a process that is kind of like a temporary pause on the systemic dynamics that are, that are currently dominant or generally dominant as a process, but to also bear it, yeah, to, to look at the, the potential for that. And I think there's huge potential for that. And to also bear in mind the, the importance of the systemic conditions and the conditions of power that are around it, that if we can not only change our decision-making processes, but change our decision-making system, that's, it's, it opens up a lot of things and otherwise are going to be, otherwise we're doing it in a headwind. And if we could create different systemic conditions, we could be doing it with a, with a tailwind, something that's actually going in our direction rather than something we're going against. Ooh, yeah. That, thank you for that. One of the challenges that we can have is like some big tricky topic and you know, there's all these different organizations around it. And let's say we get the leaders of all these organizations to come and talk to each other, right? And they come together and they come up with a the solution. They're like, all right, here we go. We converted. And guess what? And they go back to their organization that they, they've been fighting in, this, in the trenches all this time. And they're like, hey, we're going to go collaborate with NRA now, or we're going to go. And everyone's like, what the hell happened to you in there? And they lose their role in leadership. What I mean, like, so that, like, like that allegiance to your different teams, for example, might be something that could be a, a challenge and just like bigger structural things, right? Like, great. I, all the citizens figured out this one thing, but then the politician that's in charge of like implementing that now doesn't have the power to do it. Some of the edges that we get to explore and figure out how to go forward. But I hear like the importance of like, it's like there's like systemic change and there's like cultural change and I, and get a lot of hope from like that cascading ability there that you talked about. And gosh, thank you for the richness of this conversation, Paul. That's really, this has been really awesome to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks so much. And I just want to say that I feel really, really hopeful about what is possible in, in these areas. I, I think that, that these kinds of evolutions of how we make decisions and how we share power and deliberative processes, all these things are going to play a really crucial role in the transformation that we need to bring about and I have a, a huge amount of, of hope in 
the sense of possibility that I, I, I feel from, from what I've seen and what I know from my experience. Thank you for that. Both reminds me that and what, kind of what you said, I think the reason why my dad gives me pushback is because he doesn't want me to get my hopes up and, and he doesn't want me to be hurt. And, and like you were saying, but that hope that you're feeling, like, I'm, I'm really with you on that because like all of these like massive issues, if we approach them from this new perspective or a new way of doing it, we can just start sorting them out. Like we can change the process or the how we're doing things. We can start finding solutions just like that. And not only do I believe that is this process possible and that it can work because I've seen it like you have, but I also believe that so many things can, wonderful things can happen. Cool. Well, onwards and upwards. Thank you, Paul. Great. Thanks, Lincoln. Thank you so much for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. I am so grateful to today's guest for being on today's podcast. And if you liked what they had to say and you want to learn more about them or any of the things we discussed in the episode today, check them out in your show notes right there on your podcast app. Or come on down to OmniWindProject.com where you can get even more information. You can find a video version of this podcast as well as the transcript. And there are many more episodes that are going to be coming soon. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast right now and share it with a friend while you're at it. As you go into the rest of your day, I invite you to remember that we are all co-creating our future right now. And we all have a role to play in the whole. Thank you for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. Have a wonderful day.